So about uh, 15 years ago, a news story broke in England, which was very interesting, especially uh, the follow-up to the story several years later, prompted some discussion online. So here's the background to the story. Uh, there's two parents, husband and wife. They live in a two-story home. They have one son who's about 13 years old. The son is known for sleepwalking. He does that more than once or twice a year, but it's kind of innocent. He ends up in strange parts of the house, attempting to do strange things, but never gets himself in trouble. Uh, a second piece of background is that the father is a businessman, um, really a workaholic, and several evenings a week, he has his own desk set up in the living room downstairs, which has some windows that face the street, and he'll work till like 1 a.m. So here's the story. One night, maybe it's 2 or 3 a.m., the wife wakes up, looks to her side, husband still has not come to bed. She thought she heard something somewhere else in the house. So uh, she puts her bathrobe on, she walks downstairs to find a horrifying sight. Her husband is lying there in a pool of his own blood. So she rushes over to him, tries to see if he's still alive, quickly concludes, no, he's dead. Uh, and in the trauma of the moment, as things begin to settle down a little bit, she hears some sound in the hallway, looks to her left, and there is their son, who apparently is sleepwalking. He's just standing there, but there's a knife in his hand, and the knife has blood on it. So her thought is racing a million miles an hour, and after a few more minutes, here's what she does. She calls a relative to come over, she takes the knife out of the son's hand, puts it on the, the floor, takes the son back to his bedroom, tries to pull him out of that sleepwalk a little bit to see, do you remember anything? He's clueless. Puts him in bed, closes the door, calls the police, and she confesses to murdering her husband. She says they had a big fight. And you could guess why. Uh, she's assuming the son did it, but in innocence, wants to save the son years of juvenile detention center, um, years of thinking he killed his own father, though he didn't mean to. So she confesses. She gets put in prison. Here's the twist of the story. So about four or five years after she's been in prison, the truth comes out. A business associate of her husband's, knowing he would stay up and work late at night in the bottom floor, the ground floor, came over, got in or was let in, and he's the one that killed the husband and the father. So the mom is let out of prison, and as people discussed this in England, you could see how there's maybe a few good points to the story with an emphasis on maybe, right? Did the mother engage in a sacrifice? Oh, well, of course she did. Was it a substitutionary sacrifice? Yes, she sacrificed herself for her son. Um, was a penalty meted out? Was punishment meted out when there should be a punishment? Well, yes, it was. She was put in prison, um, lost her liberty, lost life as she wanted to live it. 100 years ago, she would have been executed. Uh, was that sacrifice of help to someone else? Was her son helped by it? Well, sort of would be our answer, right? I mean, he didn't go to detention center, didn't go to a psych ward for many years, didn't live thinking that he killed his father, though he wasn't awake when he did it. However, 
he loses not just his father but his mother, right? And he's got to live for years thinking his mother killed his father. So even when the truth comes out, that doesn't undo all of those years of pain for this son. Uh, and there are a bunch of other things not good about this story, right? The, the nation of England doesn't have warm and fuzzy feelings when the truth comes out. They're really angry at the mother and they consider new charges of obstruction of justice because of her lie. Now, is Christ's substitutionary death in any way similar to that? Maybe the answer is yes, but I'd say a much more strong no. He's, his sacrifice is not just a few degrees better than that, like we erase some of the negative things of that. It's in a whole different world, and that's what we'll explore later on this morning. But it's a good story to introduce that sacrifice of Christ because the more we reflect on that, the more we study it, our conclusion is this. Christ's sacrifice is perfect and pure and whole and healing in every good way. And that goodness is to the utmost. There is nothing negative in any sense, in any dynamic of Christ's death. All of these things, God's goodness, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his compassion, they all work together in perfect goodness for each one of them individually and as they work together. Many of the wonders of the Old Testament, of all of them, perhaps the biggest one is that it gets us ready for the cross so that both in preparation through the Old Testament and once we read about it in the New, we would say things like, how wondrous that God could do X and also do Y and do them both together and both perfect so that the result is we are reconciled to God. Open up your Bibles if you have them. Turn to Exodus 32. Uh, we're going to see some hints of this idea, some big hints of atonement, of intercession, of mediation, somebody trying to come between God and a people in a good sacrificial sense uh, in this famous story of the golden calf. I'm going to read from the first third of the chapter to start with, but before I do, we're going to have one principle. Uh, we'll learn something new about Bible study methodology, and you may know this already. Here's our question. When does the story or the narrative slow down? By slow down, I mean you're adding in a few words. So the sentence is longer than it needs to be, or the paragraph is longer than it needs to be. Your reading isn't quick, it slows down. When an author does that, it's usually for a purpose. The purpose is emphasis, trying to teach us something. So we want to note that as we look at this today. So let me start at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Let me stop there just for a minute. That phrase, fashioned it with a graving tool, 
that isn't really necessary for the grammar of the sentence, is it? You could just read, he received the gold from their hand, now skip to the end, and he made a golden calf. That's an example of the story slowing down. We're getting a detail, we're getting something specific. Aaron actually used his hands and a tool and was working on this. We'll return to that later. So back to the text. And they, the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He made a proclamation and he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In the next few verses, verses 7 through 10, the Lord uh, recounts this and, and concludes that it is, of course, sinful, and, and God gives his intention to destroy the people. So verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? End of that verse has another example of the story slowing down. So look at that last verse. We could have just ended with whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. End of sentence. Instead, the sentence keeps going and it tells us how God brought them up with, a, with great power and with a mighty hand. So we'll put those two kind of thoughts on hold, those two places where the story slows down. Let's get more specific. I've got three questions we're going to work through here with Exodus 32. Here's number one. What is being said in this chapter? Now, there are a lot of things being said. I'm going to point out one. And it's the phrase, brought up out of the land of Egypt. We're going to see that that occurs three times in the chapter with three different subjects, meaning fill in the blank. Blank brought them out of the land of Egypt. Well, there are three different subjects. The first is Moses. Look back at verse one. As for Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. A few verses later, there's another subject given to the phrase brought out. Look at verse four. And he, that's Aaron, received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, they made a calf... That's singular, right? And then the people said, these are your gods. We're not exactly sure what's going on. Um, one thought of three or four is that Aaron made one big calf of gold as an idol, uh, an Egyptian or pagan god. And then he, he used some of the leftover like the dross to make some smaller gods and goddesses. We're not quite sure. But clearly, the people are saying, it's really these pagan gods that brought us up out of Egypt. There's a third and final answer to the question, and you'll know that answer. It's the Lord himself, what really happened. And that's in verse 11, where Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? That last phrase that I already pointed out, that's a way of showing emphasis when you say the same thing two different times using different words. So great power and then a mighty hand. It's a way of saying, God, you, you are truly all-powerful, the only true power, loving good power in the whole universe. This was a miracle from our human perspective. 
We're now ready for point two. Point two is what is being made. There's something said in that chapter. There's something also that's made. Let me read Exodus verse three from that chapter. We've seen it already. All the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and here's the narrative slowing down, fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. So what happened here is Aaron makes an idol. Interestingly, at the same time, Aaron is making something with his own hand, using a tool to engrave metal. God was making something with his own hand. Let me start reading at verse 15. And this will explain what God is doing when Aaron is doing the idolatry thing. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. Who's doing it? God himself. Engraved on the tablets. So here, the Lord makes something. What does the Lord make? The Lord makes words with his own hand on these tablets. Now let's read one more verse before we talk more about idolatry. What's God's response to all this, to Aaron making an idol? Look at verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them. The two verses show both the sinful pride that the people have and it shows God's response. And there's a word picture for both if you looked at those words. The sinful pride of the people is described as stiff-necked. So here's the idea. Uh, Picture a big ox and the ox is pulling a load and the ox has a driver, not a rider, so a guy who walks alongside the ox with a stick. And the the good ox, the ideal ox, has a flexible neck, let's say, uh, which means that when the driver takes a little stick and taps the right side of the ox's head, say the ox is supposed to be going straight, ox rears a little bit to the right. With a little tap, because the ox has a flexible neck, the ox gets back on the straight line. So a flexible neck would stand for what? Submissiveness, respectfulness, um, humility. Whereas an ox with a hard or a stiff neck would say, I'm going to go in this direction, and I don't care what anyone else says. That's the people of Israel in this chapter. Look at verse 10, at God's response. Here we have a word picture as well, God's wrath or anger burning hot. The idea here simply is fire. I don't have to explain that to you. We all know what fire is. So let's put together a list of what we see about idolatry so far in the chapter, and maybe some some observations from idolatry. Uh, I think I'm gonna list four here. First, idolatry often starts with a misplaced priority on what we see. What we see around us, something we can touch, and not what we have heard in the past, as in heard from God himself. Look back at verse one. There's a whole lot of things that get introduced in verse one. Almost every phrase or noun in verse one gives us some look ahead to the rest of the chapter. Verse one, when the people saw, 
That's the word I want you to see here, that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. That's what the whole chapter starts with. It should start with something like the people remembered who God is and what God did. But instead, they're looking around and looking around with doubt and struggle and disappointment. Second, idolatry often starts with a misunderstanding of timing or what we would simply call impatience. Look back at that same verse when the people saw that Moses what? He delayed. Now Moses wasn't late. He was late only from the perspective of the, of the people waiting for him. So the people are in part saying we need a God who will now give us clear direction right now. We're not interested anymore in waiting for this guy Moses to represent God to us. Number three, idolatry often takes a gift from God, a gift from God, and uses that gift to replace God himself. So we worship the gift, not the giver. And we see that in chapter 32. What did they make the calf out of rings in their ears? Well, think about it for a minute. Did the Israelites originally own those rings? The answer is no. They were slave labor for the Egyptians. So we know what happened in chapters previous. Moses told them, you can take from the Egyptians. God moved apparently in the Egyptians' hearts so that they gave things like jewelry to the Israelites. They basically said, take this, get out of our country. We don't want you here anymore. So one thought, we're not sure, but one thought which I think makes sense is that all of these tens of thousands of earrings, this was like a traveling bank account for the nation of Israel. Not that they had to buy the land of Canaan, God was going to gift it to them, but perhaps when they settle as they trade with other nations around them, this will help them get started in the new land. Anyway, you look at it, the earrings are a gift from God that they are now using to replace God himself. Four, and finally, a final note on idolatry. In idolatry, we blame circumstances instead of the evil intent of our own heart. Now, the Israelites knew how to listen to stories. You and I, in terms of written stories, we're not that good at looking at details. Maybe some of you can do that with movies. I've talked to some of you where you're like, you'll analyze a movie and, you know, You'll pick out a word or a certain object in a room that I'll miss, and you'll go, I think that's significant, and you'll be right. But we've lost the art of doing that with, say, a novel. Israelites, that wouldn't have been the case. They're gonna pick up on things as this story is told. And let me show you one that relates to this idea of circumstances. We're gonna compare what Aaron says in reality. We'll put that on the left-hand column I'm going to compare that with what Aaron says later when Moses comes back down from the mountain and Moses says, what happened? And Aaron's going to relate what he said previously. So here's the first part of it. Here's the reality. Verse 2, we've read it already. Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. Now, when you look at that, there are two clear commands there, Right? Take off these rings, give them to me. So Moses comes down from the mountain, and now here's what Aaron says. Look at verse 24. 
Aaron says, I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, do you see the difference? It's actually, there are three differences there, not just that last one that if you've looked at Exodus 32 before, you'll remember as a kind of comic relief. Well, how does a calf come out of a, a furnace by itself? If there's more going on here, it's not at all unlike how Eve misquotes God, twists what he says in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to look there, but it's very similar. So in the real version, Aaron gives a command, take off the rings of gold. Look at the revised version. If any of you have gold, eh, go ahead and take it off. It's almost like a suggestion, right? Like, hey, we're struggling, we're in doubt. Um, let's pool our resources here. You know, if you've got this little traveling bank account, put it in the middle of our circle and let's, let's maybe talk about what we might be able to do with this. Then, in the real version, once they take it off of their ears, he says, give it to me, another command. Look at the revised version. In the revised version, they gave it to me. So it's almost like they took the earrings off, and then they just said, Aaron, you take this. We don't want it. You do something with it. Very, very different. And then, of course, there's that third instance where, uh, again, if you've read the chapter or studied it, you'll remember it. Aaron claims to have not made anything with his own hands, which is the reality. We saw that. Uh, it kind of made itself. Circumstances just kind of happened. It was, so to speak, out of his hands. That's what he's communicating. When the text says, no, it was not only in his hands in a figurative sense as in, it is in, as in his control. It was literally a tool in his hands, making the calf. So, we're ready for our third part of the outline. What is really needed? What's the main point of this chapter? We've seen what is said, at least one thing that was said. It's really the Lord that brought them up out of Egypt, and from our perspective, it was a miracle that he did that. We've seen one thing that was done, and as important as that is, Aaron makes an idol, God makes words. Uh, that may not be the main point of this chapter. So let me tell you what I think it is, and then I'll try to, try to give some evidence for that in the chapter. In one word, it's the word intercession. So someone that intercedes represents one party to another, sometimes even in both directions. So we're going to read a lot about intercession in this chapter. It actually starts with verse 1 as a little hint that the chapter is going to weave in and out of that. If you recall in that verse, the people gather themselves to Aaron. Now, why go to Aaron? I mean, they could have gotten together in what we call community groups and just kind of done the idolatry thing on their own. Or as extended families, they could have said, let's make a little idol or, or let's start considering leaving Yahweh and worshiping other gods and goddesses or adding them to our worship of Yahweh. But they went to Aaron. So there's already a hint that someone needs to represent the people to God or gods and goddesses. Someone needs to speak on behalf of gods and goddesses back to the people. In fact, the chapter's book ended with that idea. Look at the very last verse. The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. 
there again is a slowing down of the story. Why not just end the sentence with because they made the calf? Instead, we've got this added phrase, the one that Aaron made. Now, in reality, the people sinned and Aaron sinned. They, they all made the calf. It wasn't just Aaron, nor was it just the people. But we've got his name mentioned again at the end. But here are the, the two big things where we see intercession. One is in the middle of the chapter, so let me start reading at verse 11. This is where Moses intercedes for the people to God. Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Stop there for a minute. Isn't it interesting? He uses Jacob's second name, his kind of symbolic name, and doesn't call him Jacob. Why would Moses do that? Because Jacob had 12 sons, right? The 12 sons become the 12 tribes. They become Israel. And that's the very people that Moses is interceding for right now. So remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So let's start by noticing our principle about when a story slows down, but here it's not just a few words. It's something else that we call a speech uh, where we use double quote marks. So the person telling the story is really slowing things down if he's gonna quote somebody word for word. After all, Moses would have had tens of thousands of speeches and conversations in his lifetime. Here we've got one recorded word for word. That slows the pace down. A narrator could have just summarized that. So let's look at it. There are three reasons Moses gives, and what I think is interesting is that all three, when we look at these, are gonna be based in God's person, his attributes, and his glory, not in any kind of selfishness. So if you look at verse 11, what Moses is basically saying there is you, this is your people, you brought them up out of Egypt, kind of like saying you started this covenant relationship and it's for your glory, so God, you need to keep it going. Then look at the next verse. Here's the second reason, verse 12. If you look at that, the second reason is kind of obvious. Moses is, Moses is saying this, God, your glory, if you destroy all of your people and start over again with with me, Moses, or just some single person or family. If you do that now, your glory may be in some state of discredit, at least from my perspective, in the eyes of the Egyptians. After all, they might say, if I could paraphrase, something like this. Man, we thought that might be the true and only God of the universe. After all, he parted the Red Sea, and then he closed it over on our chariots, but then God apparently wantonly, randomly, destroyed that whole people that he had just rescued. Uh, that God not, is not worth a second look. So, so says Moses. And then there's a third reason he gives. I'll read this verse, verse 13. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. All this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So the third reason he gives, and this is not uncommon in priests or especially prophets in the Bible, is this. God, you made a promise to our ancestors, which carried on to this whole people that's in front of me now. You made a promise. And I am imploring you to carry that promise along another step and to move towards bringing it to fulfillment. Again, you come across that often in the prophets. So Moses had to intercede for his people and he did it in a way that we'll soon learn will not sweep sin under a carpet. We can't have that. We can't have God just ignoring sin if, he, if his holiness and righteousness is beyond our comprehension. But in these verses, Moses is saying, God, preserve your people. Don't destroy him. The Lord grants that. The next 15 verses or so I'm going to summarize for you because we're going to look at that last intercession at the end of the whole chapter. So the next 15 verses, Moses goes down from talking with the Lord, sees with his own eyes what is happening. Moses becomes angry, maybe more so than God, but the anger of Moses burns hot, so we've got that word picture of fire again. He talks to Aaron. Aaron says, you know the people, they are set on evil, and Aaron proceeds to give that revisionist history that we saw a few minutes ago. The biggest thing that Moses sees is summed up in verse 25 that the people are unrestrained. They have not only created an idol, but they, or at least the majority of the people, are persisting in not just idolatry, but immorality and evil. They're set in their way, at least a good portion of the people. They have not just made a calf. So Moses offers a last chance to the people. He offers a choice in verse 26, all who are for the Lord, for Yahweh, as in for him and him alone, come over to me. And many people do that. Uh, Moses commands the Levites to kill people that don't, and they kill about 3,000 Israelites. So we would assume those 3,000 are basically communicating this. Even though, Moses, you've destroyed that golden calf, that's where our allegiance and devotion lie, and always will. We're fully committed to gods and goddesses. So we might think, well, that's the end of the chapter. 3,000 die, let's move on to something else, and it isn't. There's one big part of the chapter that remains. So let's read that. I'll start at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord. He went back up the mountain, and he said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them, 
And apparently that day comes fairly soon. Verse 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So in this last passage about intercession, Moses offers himself his own life as a substitutionary sacrifice for the people. In doing that, it is perhaps the finest hour for Moses. I mean, we've seen the story of Exodus up to this point. There are plenty of times when Moses is selfish or he gets angry in a sinful way or impatient. But in this instance, he seems to be a humble leader who says, God, take my life so that the people can live. But God rejects his offer. God's response is that sinners must die. At this point in the history of the people, God will not have a man die on behalf of the people. Now, what's the difference between this intercession, where God says no, and the middle intercession, where God says yes? Well, the biggest difference, I think, is in the verb that Moses uses, the request he makes of God. So let's look at that for a minute or two. Verse 12, God's gonna say he will relent or turn when Moses asks him for that. So I'll read verse 12. Moses says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. So don't kill all of the people. But then in the last part, the last intercession, here's what Moses says, verse 32. So skip ahead 10 verses. But now, if you will forgive their sin, very, very different request. And God, again, does not accept that offer that Moses makes, that if God won't forgive, which God will not, sin must be punished, will God punish Moses in place of the people? God says no to that as well. Instead, God sends a plague, which is a really interesting word. So where have we heard the word plague before? With Egypt and the 10 plagues, and sure enough, it's the same word in Hebrew. So God is, in essence, saying this, for a good portion of this people, I am treating them just like non-believers, just like Egyptians, because their words and their actions, which reflect their heart, are no different than the Egyptians. They have chosen the golden calf and they have persisted in that choice. And let that overflow into immorality and wickedness in general. So the offer of Moses to die for the people, that was rejected. That would make us, I think, if we could put our minds back in that time period, if we kind of pretend we're walking in the shoes of Israelites, that would make us long for a time when that could be possible, that people will not die for their own sins, that there could be an atonement. And not just an atonement that was temporary or partial or for one year or for some of the sins of the people, but one that could be forever, that would cover all the sin of an individual man or woman or boy or girl. Romans 5.8 says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let's have a little theology class just for five minutes here, although hopefully we've been doing that the whole hour. Um, that word atonement came across as a great revelation last week, which maybe you know already. So 
uh, let me back up. 30 years ago, uh, I heard somebody say, think of the word atonement. And here's a little memory aid. Atonement means at one meant. And I thought, well, that's kind of cheesy, but that works. The little memory aid, they, they took a theological term, they saw the word one, O-N-E, in the middle of the word. Then they saw, hey, there's at, A-T, in front of it. At one meant. Let's use that to remember what the theological term means. Well, that's what I've thought for the last 30 years. So last week, I'm reading on atonement, and here's the reality of it. They invented the word, and they started with at one meant. So it's not a theological term that you can find the word one in the middle of and make a little memory aid or an observation to help you understand the meaning. That's where the word came from. In the 1520s, somebody came up with at one meant, put them all together, Tyndale uses that the first time it's in print in his English translation of the Bible in the mid to late 1520s. So now you, now you know a theological term and you know exactly what it means because the history of the word is at-one-ment. It's really one result, and maybe it's the main result, of substitutionary death, the death of Christ, and that is reconciliation, bringing us back to God because we are separate as far as separate can be. So Christ's sacrifice does forgive, but it does a lot more than forgive. It reconciles. In fact, the more we read the New Testament, Gospels and Epistles, the more we come up with a list of, of benefits from Christ's substitutionary death, and when we repent, turn away from ourselves and turn to Christ and believe then and follow him. We have a new Father in heaven, we have a new family, we have each other. We have a new future. We have a new heart. And we have a new life that the Bible calls eternal life. So let me close with this. Atonement help, helps us to see several truths and I'll list just three of them. I'm sure there's a much longer list of what atonement can help us see. Here's one of those truths. Uh, I like. Uh, the way this author put it, Patty Withers says this. She says, atonement helps us see the magnitude of God's hatred for all sin. Because God is holy and just, his wrath against sin is not easily satisfied and his forgiveness is not easily obtained. Very true. Illustrated by Exodus 32. When Moses says, can you forgive them? God says, I cannot. I cannot just let sin be erased. Moses says, can I die in their place? God says, you cannot. Which prompts us to think there must be, hopefully, a perfect sacrifice that will satisfy God the Father. And it ends up being God himself in the second person. Second, atonement will help us to see that we, we don't have to carry guilt from our sin we don't have to pay for our sin. We don't even share in the guilt or payment of the penalty for that sin because Christ bore it all. That has amazing and immense ramifications for counseling and for our emotions. Third, an understanding of substitutionary atonement helps us to forgive others. There are many verses in the New Testament that say, if you and I reflect on, if we meditate on Christ's substitutionary death and his resurrection, 
that will compel, it will fill our hearts with an intent, a desire to forgive others. So does atonement affect relationships? Does it affect discipleship? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Here's one final quote. Uh, I like the way this pastor in England worded things. It's thinking of atonement. The apostles brought every issue of doctrine and practice, every question of faith and life, back to Christ and him crucified, and they resolved it at the foot of the cross. Read over the epistles through this lens and see how the cross is the answer to division between Jew and Gentile. It's the answer to legalism in Galatia. It's the answer to paganism in Ephesus, to mysticism and syncretism in Colossae. It deals with antagonism between Philemon and Onesimus, a slave and his owner, uh, with forgiveness between saints in Ephesus, with selfishness in Philippi. The perfect, whole, healing, and good in every way, death of Christ, is what we cling to, what we run to, and the foundation we build our lives upon. Only in Christ and in his work on the cross. So has it ever been, so shall it ever be. Please pray with me. Father, we ask for your help that we would not lift up our soul to another that we would not lift up our eyes and look with worship and with the devotion that is only due to you when we see another person or a thing. Father, we pray that you would help some in this room with impatience, walking away from you thinking that you are delayed in the goodness you should give and that you're not all wise. God, for others of us in this room, we pray that you would help us recognize we've taken a gift that you have given and replaced you with the gift, at least in some contexts and on some level. And that gift needs to be given up, redeemed for your glory. And Father, help us not to blame circumstances. And in the midst of circumstances of pain or suffering or, or discomfort, look to a job or or money in the bank account, or even a marriage as our idol to save us from the circumstances. Father, we pray that you would help us to look to Christ and Christ alone. May we gradually become more of what we behold. May we behold Jesus on the cross and Jesus resurrected in our lives today in his name.